Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Low Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we are going to be talking to Mike Gavoni. Gavoni, 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 Mike, Mike, Gavoni. Okay, anyway. So, Mike, this is just. I can't even with this story. It's okay. So Mike was raised by a single father who was a defrocked Catholic priest. Look up defrocked. Mike Gavoni's childhood was anything but traditional. He began using opiates and other substances at a young age to mask the feelings he had associated with childhood trauma. This led him down a path of substance abuse and addiction until he discovered an unorthodox approach to recovery. Now, having lived in recovery for over 16 years, Mike is passionate about helping people in recovery experience healing and transformation. His experience includes supporting three major hospital emergency rooms in Boston and helping patients with substance abuse and related complications. He works with individuals and groups both in person and virtually. Mike currently has a thriving private practice working as an integrative holistic recovery coach. He is able to see through the lens of trauma and believes that helping people create a feeling of safety and connection within their own body is essential to becoming well and achieving long-term recovery. Woo! So here's the down low on Mike. Unbelievable story, okay? Unbelievable story. Catholic priest as his father, who in Boston who gets charged with sexual abuse of of other boys not 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 Mike that he knows of gets defrocked so he's no longer a catholic priest becomes a priest in a born again church continues that and Mike is living with his dad in this situation and he's his mother is taken away from him all of these childhood traumatic events and and really seeing through the lens of this kind of stuff happens everywhere. So even if in, I think a lot of times in religious communities, there's this reverence for, or, 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 you know, pedestal for people who are part of the church, who are clergy. And it's really important to remember that we're all human and we're all flawed. And and I think this was a perfect example of this and how Mike got through something that, I think had it been many other people, he they would not have been able to overcome the shame and trauma of what happened. And Mike has done that beautifully and he's used unorthodox, you know, and orthodox, I suppose, is kind of in the AA category, but he's used unorthodox ways of getting sober and living this completely different life, healing his body. He almost lost part of his colon and he left Western medicine and healed himself. And Mike and I get into the nitty gritty of that because I get real excited. So anyway, this is just a rad, he's a rad guy. It's a rad episode and I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. I'm also going to do an episode with Mike, a bonus episode with Mike. So stay tuned about psychedelics and uh, recovery, so therapeutic psychedelics. I am fascinated about this stuff. So without further ado, my friends, I give you Mike Gavoni, episode 94. Let's do this.
You're listening to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. No, it'll be, it'll be, it'll feel like home. Oh, good. I love that. Yeah. We can talk about how we're all handling Brady, like being on a different team and how I didn't know who I was anymore when I was rooting for the Buccaneers this year, because here I am rooting for them and I'm just lost, like a huge lost as a human, not knowing what to do. I just can't believe that he's performing at such a level for his age and, you know, after what he's already accomplished, you know, accomplished and he's still on top. It's just pretty amazing. It is. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's just, you know, I'm selfish and self-centered because I'm an alcoholic and that's that's how I work. And so I naturally would like him to be consistent and stay with one team so I don't get confused and I don't feel like I'm rooting for, you know, Anyway, but my mother was rooting for the Buccaneers. So we we were, we, you know, she, she, my mother hangs the 13 colonies flag outside of her house, not the American flag, the 13 colonies flag and the Patriots flag outside mm. her house. Wow. She's so, diehard. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it was very serious. Is Lion's Rock a 12 step based or are they, they're open to all paths? No, Lion Rock is not 12 step based. Um, it's cognitive behavioral therapy based. Our professional programs are. And they encourage people to try any support groups outside of, you know, outside of the therapy that work for them. Sweet. Yeah. Are you 12 step? Tell me about your, are you in recovery? Are you 12 step? What's your, what's yeah, your deal? So I, I got sober in 2004. So I think I'm just a little bit over you, maybe 16 years. And um, ever since I had a spiritual awakening as a result of, inescapable suffering and had a shift in consciousness, I never returned to 12-step. Not because I'm better than 12-step or uh, that sort of thing. It's just um, my consciousness wasn't wasn't at 12-step. I was ready for something deeper. And um, so I left 12-step about seven years ago, and I've been on more of a Buddhist meditation path. But I, I, I think 12-step is great, and it's probably the best like fellowship type of program set up. But the the verbiage and um, a lot of it is 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 outdated. It's kind of an older paradigm per se, in the way that it, it functions. I think you know amongst the halls. Although other topic that's really interesting is um, Bill Wilson had a psychedelic experience on uh, belladonna, which psychedelics are part of the twelve step program that he wanted to actually implement. But I guess the World Organization of AA wasn't really down for that. So I think it's like. It's kind of like the, it's like the cabal in government. It's like, you know, there's shit going on back there that we don't really see. And yet, like, there's a whole other part of AA and what's going on that I think that people aren't privy to. And and a lot of people's consciousness aren't ready to hear particular things. But we are going to be catapulted and are being catapulted right now into a higher dimension of consciousness amongst the recovery community and just in general. So we're going to be seeing, you know, psychedelic therapies in these plant medicines come back around to support people from healing from the root of addiction, which I believe is trauma. And, um, and people, some are on board right now. Some are still fighting it. Some don't even know what we're talking about, but a lot of people do. 
So if I'm the first one to speak on your show and um, then about that, then great. I, I, I honor that. And um, yeah. I dig it. I love it. And I love, you know, my, I, I'm about whatever works, right? Whatever makes you happy. Like I'm in the business of you getting happy and well, and that looks different for different people. And, you know, it would be like if we all had the same goal weight, right? Like we don't. And, and so success is going to look different for each of us. And I, I'm on that, you know, I'm at that, but that works for me. Interestingly enough, you know, I've been in 12 step. I've been in AA. I went to my first AA meeting when I was 15, been sober since I was 19. And wow, you were fucked up. Oh yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. No, that's accurate. Nobody nobody's nobody's like, I need to stop drinking at 19 unless like the shit has hit the fan, right? Like that doesn't happen, you know, like please help me not drink at 19. Yeah, no. So I've been thinking lately as I watch, like I love 12 step because it, it's like nostalgic for me. It it all the things that I find stupid and crazy about it, I ignore. I went to eight years of Catholic school. I went to Sacred Heart. I'm not Catholic. And um, I'm so sorry, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I know. So sad. Um, I'm just rousing me, Ashley. I'm not, I'm not sure they wanted me. Let's just put it that yeah. way. But I, I see that, like, I see the influence. Let's just put it that way. I see, I'm aware of the influence. And what I always think is interesting is I see, so we have people in 12 step who are dedicated to the letter of the text, right? They're, they're, they take the text as the word of God, if you will. And I've been watching over the years how the Bible, I'm going to, I'm going to get crucified for saying this, but like, I've been watching over the years how the Bible became out of date, so to speak, because that's what's happened a lot in 12 step is where people follow, like, instead of taking the spirit of what was written and applying it to what's relevant today, the people who take the text verbatim and, and, and there's no imagination with it as it applies to today, I see how they become outdated and how they seem archaic and create this archaic form of by the book, you know, to the letter. And I, and it reminds me so much of the groups of people who feel that way about the Bible, which is by the, by the letter, how, whether or not that's true, I have no idea. I, you know, I, I was not given that information, but I can see how in both cases, whether it's right or wrong, whether the information is accurate or not, how it starts to sound super outdated, how the, how the conversations, how the, when you don't update a text through time, when you don't add to it, when you don't interpret based on new information and things that are happening, how it starts to sound that way. And I, I've been around long enough to see, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a chapter to two wives. It's a perfect example of that, right? And it talks about, and it's super sexist. And I hated reading it when, you know, but that was a sign of the times, right? And But it's still there because it's part of that historical, it's a historical document. And, uh, and so, you know, to me, it's very, it has a lot of the, uh, for me, it is church. It is about going and connecting and it is about being with those groups of people. And it's an easy way to like meet people. But I also don't think, I also respect that it's not for everybody. Yeah, for sure. And um, I, I too respect whatever people's path is. And, you know, 12 Step uh, for sure had a great influence on who I am today and the fact that I'm breathing and alive and um, have made it this far. So yeah, 
pass our many recovery is one, or my, my mentor would say pass our many truth is one therapies and many healing is one. So we're, we're all going to the same place. You know, we're all, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or smart recovery, AANA, like, you know, let's, let's, let's get into recovery. And then a step further, what I'm about is the healing beyond recovery that I think is uh, not, I think that I know is attainable because I live it each day and, Maybe we get there in this conversation, but um, yeah, I respect where everyone is. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love your philosophy. I can tell you've done a lot of work, you know, to get here. Let's talk about a little bit about where, so where you grew up, you had um, an interesting, unusual upbringing. Tell me a little bit about what it was like. You grew up in Massachusetts and in, um, in Boston and, and had a very, you know, profound experience. We talk a little bit about that, about how you led up to your usage. Yeah, for sure. So my 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 story may be unique, but the pain is still the same. And uh, I think we all uh, not we you know we all have a story, and you know our stories may be different. And in fact, mine's pretty unique in some some areas. But um, you know, the pain is the same. The pain of why I use drugs and alcohol, and uh, the pain that got me into recovery and the pain that actually got me to actually, you know, shift my consciousness. So we can get into that. But yeah, I grew up in a town called Marshfield, about 30 miles south of Boston, beach town, nice area, you know, middle-class family. And I grew up on a street called Atwell Circle. And, um, you know, it was a nice, pleasant street, had some nice kids on it that I hung around with. But, you know, behind the doors of my home, there was a lot of things that weren't um, supporting a healthy environment for a child. And in fact, I guess a huge piece of that was there wasn't a mother. My mother wasn't there. So I was taken from my mother at three years old. And I say I was taken because, you know, as we get into the story, you know, my father at the time had an upper hand on her. Uh, My father was a religious figure. And back in the 80s, you know, you really weren't questioning religious figures police officers, things of that, you know, they were like to the law and, you know, doctors and so forth. And, and especially, you know, clergy. And, you know, there, so my, my, my mother had an alcohol problem and um, she also kept the keys to Pandora's box, the secrets about my father. And my father did everything um, under the sun to keep his secrets at bay and whatever he had to do to suppress my mother. And I think after doing a lot of my work, I've come to conclude and even have this conversation with my mom that, you know, I don't think my mom could have supported us, my sister and I. So I'm grateful that my father did. And he put a roof over our heads and, 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 and clothes on our back. But, you know, there was a, there was lack of attunement. There was lack of love. There was lack of nurturing, you know, and I would soon find out about my dad and his dark secrets the same way my mom did when I was um, in her womb and when she found out about his secrets, which was, I think, the first time I experienced trauma. And I believe I was traumatized in utero and I was swimming in a sea of cortisol. And that's what led me um, or set me up epigenetically for uh, early onset disease. I develop autoimmune disease and, you know, nervous system issues. So that's a little bit of um, the childhood. And yeah, to say that it was normal and beautiful and all of that, I mean, that's, that, that would be far from, from the truth. 
So your your father was a Catholic priest, but then he he was a Catholic priest, but but Catholic priests don't get married um, and have children. So how did and and you said that they're revered in the community, but at the time where he would have taken custody of you guys, he must not have been a part of the church because priests can't have children. How did that? So he, how did he? get kicked out and then how did he remain that revered figure if he had if people knew that piece yeah so he didn't he didn't get kicked out he did get defrocked that was later much later when all this when the catholic abuse scandal wind up coming out but yes my father was a very well-known priest uh, at saint joseph's in quincy massachusetts and he i think my my grandparents went to his church uh, or went to saint joseph's and somehow they, were, they, you know, they met each other and so forth. And my my father found his way into my mother's home in Situate, Massachusetts, as a Catholic priest. How I don't know um, the details, but anyways, he ended up there with full Roman Catholic collar on and 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 vests on on a mission from God to marry my mother, which at the time was uh, sixteen years his junior. So he was like thirty five or whatever and she was like sixteen years old. And the God loving Portuguese woman, my mother, uh, my grandmother is rather, you know, handed thought it was the best thing ever that this Catholic priest was coming into her home. I mean, Catholic priests back in the day were like holier than thou. I mean, that was like a huge symbol, especially coming from, I mean, I'm half Italian, half Portuguese. I mean, come on. It was like a, it was like a perfect, <laughs> it's like a perfect setup. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So as, as odd as it is, you know, my, my grandmother, you know, welcomed him and kind of quoted my mother to this priest. And um, they, they, you know, got together, whatever the case may be, and got married. And my dad derobed. He put the robes down. He left the Catholic church, I think. And I don't know this 100% because I don't know um, inside my father's uh, brain um, fully, thank God. But I think he was hiding. I think that's what, you know, he married my mother. My mother was the prettiest girl in town. And, you know, here he was with this pretty woman and, you know, getting married. And, you know, they had intercourse very few times, like few times. And my sister and I were born. So the odds of me being on this planet were pretty low. So I know I got a reason here, right? This is my, this is, yeah, this is my reason. And we're what we all have a reason. We're all, we're all perfect. And, uh, you know, so, and when I say that, I don't mean like egotistically, but we're all here for a reason. We all have a medicine. We all have a message. We all had to support and help each other. So that's kind of how that happened. And, uh, my sister and I, you know, we're, we're born. My sister's two years older than me. And, and, um, that's kind of, kind of how it went. When, so was your mom, your, your mom struggled with addiction. Did that start before or after she married your father? Yeah, I believe that started before my dad, my, excuse me, my mom started uh, exploring with alcohol. Now, my mom's a perfect um, candidate for this too, because she experienced a lot of trauma even before she met my father. You know, my grandfather, her father died of alcoholism, which we were told that we're not, so we're not a hundred percent sure. There's a lot of questions that have arisen actually since psychedelic medicine has come into my mother's life as well on, on her healing journey. Um, yes, I did send my mother to the jungle to do ayahuasca. And uh, so, you know, there was a lot of trauma that my mom experienced and she was, you know, she was suffering and she was, you know, nipping and sipping as a young girl and kind of set her up to, 
to develop this problem. And when I say, you know, my mom unfortunately has the allergy of alcohol or being an alcoholic, it's, it's Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, it's textbook alcoholism. So it's, you know, so she, she was primed up. And, and I think that's um, a huge reason why that, you know, my father eventually won custody of us when I was three and my sister was five because mom just couldn't, couldn't handle it. Right. And maybe he also saw in her, you know, that, that she was pre, you know, that she was vulnerable, right? And and when he came into that that world, into her world, clearly he he groomed he groomed my grandmother. He groomed yeah. he groomed the house, for yeah. sure, absolutely, yeah. without a question. How does it? So you know what later came out uh, with your dad was that he had abused some children and. You don't know if that happened to you and your sister. That was not something, or or I should say, was that something that you were exposed to when you were living with him? You know, Ashley, if you would have asked me that two months ago, I would have said no for sure. Until I did my first psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy journey with MDMA, mm-hmm. that's the first time that that situation possibly could have happened. I still don't know. I'm still in the process of working through with that medicine. It's underground right now, unfortunately, with a therapist um, or a practitioner. But um, I, I don't know. I don't know. What did you see? So, like, you you knew that he, there was something going on. He was, you know, you mentioned, you know, when we talked earlier that that there was he was up watching pornographic content. Like, did you see that? Was that was that something that you were aware of? What was what was the experience like? You know, you you've had your first. You started smoking pot at eleven. Up to eleven, what was kind of before you were altered? What was that experience? What was it like in your world before eleven? So, just to disclose too, one of the issues with trauma is you lose track of time timelines. So I can't I can't remember a lot of my childhood, like chronologically, but. I was, I think I was really affected when my mother was taken away from me at three. That's when I became super defiant. Now I can find you pictures of me with two middle fingers up at four years old, like fuck the world. And that's how I rolled as a young kid. Now defiance also saved me because I didn't, I didn't fall into the web of, of my father in the religiosity that followed, which um, wasn't for my highest, you know, evolution and serving me, I believe. I think a lot of it was shadowed. I could get into that a little later. But until I was 11, you know, I poured the, 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 the wine or the grape juice in church. I also skipped Sunday school and went and bought non-laters and gummy bears and was flipping my father off from the back of the church, my mother tells me. And uh, I was out of control to some degree. And, and especially when my mother was taken away, I, I was, you know, so... I played street hockey with the kids. I, I I didn't have a good relationship with my father. I can remember since the get go, and um, you know, so I did I did boy things, but I started to really venture off and um, seek outside myself when I was young, trying to fill something, trying to find some sort of ease, find some sort of regulation in this little nervous system that was so terribly dysregulated and, and so you know, stuck on and sympathetic arousal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I love that you said, you know, you didn't have attunement and, and talking about that because that's, 
you know, feeling like you have a parent or, or I, you know, an adult um, who is attuned to what your experience is, to what's going on with you, just connected, like any kind of connection and is, is also that safety and, and, and oxytocin and, and the development, right. You know, we, they talk about with little kids, how their brain grows when you hug them, you know, just that, just that alone without the complications of all the other stuff you went through is incredibly important and, and, and damaging. So I, I see how, you know, we talk about that genetics load the gun and environment pulls the trigger. And if there was ever an environment that was going to pull the trigger, you found it. Oh yeah. The perfect storm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I didn't, you know, for those of you who are listening and you're like, yeah, well, I didn't have all that trauma and like the lack of attunement from your caregiver can be traumatizing for your little nervous system. If someone isn't there to hold you and embrace you and acknowledge you, that can be traumatizing. So all of that stuff um, resides unprocessed in the nervous system. And, you know, many people who I've worked with and coached don't, they, you know, a lot of them say, oh, I didn't have those big T traumas, let's just say, you know, and then you get into talking with them and other things arise and you're like, yeah, that that's trauma. You know, you didn't, you didn't have someone there to hold you and to acknowledge you and to comfort you and to help support your social engagement system. And in fact, the mother is the child's regulator from zero to 18 or 24 months that the mother regulates the, the child's nervous system. And I, I sit here today in Sedona, Arizona with my mom you know, she's here and I'm supporting her on her healing journey. We can get into that if you want later. And I, 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 you know, of course I have my own practitioners that I work with. And I said to my therapist not too long ago, I said, I said, I didn't have a chance. You know, my, my mother's 60 years old and she's still dysregulated. How did I ever have a chance? And I'm not saying this is a victim. Um, yes, there is a part of me that grieves that, but I didn't have a chance. So if you didn't have attunement and someone there to support you and love you and acknowledge you and all that stuff, that can be traumatizing. So yeah, it's a hundred percent. I'm glad you you mentioned that. You know, we talk about on this podcast. We also we you know we talk about we typically have guests on that have really unique stories and and things to talk about. We also have guests on that don't have you know super unique but super relatable. But again, it's all about looking for the similarities, not the differences, right? It's about how we feel. Yeah, and and part of my story, and I think I've been gifted with this much. Uh, ground to cover and in multi-dimensionality of my story is for to cover a lot of ground like for example religiosity and religious religious trauma is for real do you know how many people go to aa and 12 step and say they hear god and they're gone not necessarily mm-hmm. because they've oh, been so many yeah not that they've necessarily been hurt by a clergy member maybe i've met plenty of those too but People that, you know, grew up as atheist or agnostic or or just don't, you know, they're, they're just not into that. Don't don't resonate with that, you know. So it's, you know, it's really important to recognize that, you know, religious trauma is for real. And I think that's just one of the boxes, unfortunately, I can check off amongst amongst many to cover the uh, trauma story. Yes, absolutely. And I think um, I think a lot of people do hear the God stuff. I mean, that's something I hear all the time. And and for me, it was a huge turnoff. It was a huge, huge turnoff, but I was desperate enough that I was willing to kind of 
compartmentalize. <laughs> Just go, I don't know what you guys are talking about, whatever. How did you start? How did you first start using? Did you, were you the person who the first moment you used, you knew that that was, that you had found your medicine? <laughs> That's an interesting question. No, I actually cried. I, cr- I smoked my first joint and cried. And uh, I was paranoid. I, I oh, had. Yeah. You know, I was totally outside of myself, and I actually saw a kid on the um, ice skating pond there. He, his tooth got knocked out with a with a with a hockey stick, and I was stoned for the first time, and I was like all discombobulated. So I didn't think it was something I like wanted to do all the time, but I kept chasing it. Booze was something else that when I drank it, it wasn't like oh, I fell in love with it. I got wasted. I drank my first Mickey's Ice Forty and got trashed, and I was like. That wasn't too fun, but I kept going for more. So I started at 11 uh, with with marijuana and then drinking wine coolers. My fiance li- uh, laughs at me every time I say wine coolers. She's like, they're spritzers mm-hmm. or whatever they are. I don't know what they are anymore. <laughs> 2021, they, they were wine coolers when I was drinking them. And it just progressed from there to club drugs to a little cocaine. I never really liked using cocaine. I have my whole hypothesis about that. I think depending upon where your nervous system is, if you're down in the dorsal vagal, which is the red and, you know, immobilized, not enough energy, you might like uppers and methamphetamines. I was too buzzing high. I was sympathetic driven. I was on the go all the time, worry, anxiety. Give me an Oxycontin and I'm, I'm in the sweet spot. So Oxycontins, I started with weed, I ended with booze, did a lot of things in between. I didn't use drugs intravenously, but I did enough Oxycontins to kill a small donkey. And that's what brought me to my knees. Yeah, that's uh, Oxycontin is, is really, really skilled at that, bringing people right down the tubes, man. That, that's, that opiates are just no joke. So how old were you when you started using opiates? I think I probably used my first opiate around 16 years old. I remember splitting an Oxycontin 40 with a bunch of friends. We were at a, on, a, on my buddy's boat, so we were on a boat party. And I got wasted off this, it, it probably equivalent to 10 milligrams. And the cops came. I couldn't even talk to them. Normally, I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I could always talk to the cops. I was that guy that could always have head on straight as, as much, you know, much as I took in my system. I could talk to you. And uh, and I, I couldn't. I was totally knocked out. And I loved that. And why I think I love that is we know the, the pathways to opiates, um, the same pathways that light up with a mother's connection is the same pathways that light up with op- opiates. So I had met that love I was looking for and that comfort from this pill, you know, neurobiology, you know, through my neurobiology, you know, my, my brain was really digging that. And um, that led me for three years, I was on an Oxycontin run. And at the end, I was 18 years old. I was 130 pounds. I couldn't eat solid food. I had a I had boxes and boxes of, of insures, which are like what old people drink, you know, and uh, I couldn't eat solid food or I didn't want to eat solid food because I would come down off the pills. So I knew I had to do something and I set a date to that. This was my last day using Oxycontins and I used about 560, 560 to 600 milligrams. And then I stopped and I, I reached out to my mother who was in my life at the time back, you know, 
on in and out a little bit with her alcoholism. At this point, um, I had left my house because of my father's the, the stuff that was going on at my house with, with the pornography and, and discovering his secrets and all that sort of stuff. It wasn't heterosexual pornography. Yeah. So my, my father, how I discovered that was we got a computer in our house. And at this point, I was I was about 17 years old. I had just graduated high school. I graduated really young. And something was, was wrong in my home. We had a computer. My dad was up till hours of the night. His behavior was 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 erratic. He was talking to people on the telephone and not paying attention to me or my sister. She was off at college. It was just a really dark time. We just knew things were going on. Meanwhile, like my, you could feel it. I it could was feel just, it. Yeah, the yeah, house yeah. plants in the house were dead. It was, it was just like energetically, energetically, just yes, exactly. And I was sitting on the edge of my bed and something told me, you know, I'm very intuitive, um, very intuitive. And I listen and something told me, go look under his mattress. So I did. And I found pornography and it wasn't child pornography. It was pornography of, you know, like young men. And I was like, oh, okay. And, and it was, was I surprised? No, just because of the whole dynamic, but I had concrete proof at this point. My father catered to young men in his church. My father did things that were very suspicious, but as a young kid, I couldn't put it together. It's all I could say at 14 was, dad, why don't you have a fucking girlfriend? What's up? You know, no, no offense to the listeners. He's he's still in, I'm so like, this is the part, because I I mean, he's still in the Catholic church. No, no, no. He left the Catholic church, excuse me, when he met my mom and and became a born again Christian preacher. Okay. Thank you. I'm the preacher's son. Not the, not the, the priest's son. The priest okay, is so an old lifetime that he... You are, you're both, right? I mean... Yes. yes. Yeah. Lucky for you, you come yeah. both. So he... Okay, so he's gone and now, he, now he's born again and now he's... Got it. Okay. But the allegations were from when he was a Catholic priest, right? Of course. They came when out. All, when all this stuff started coming out in the newspaper, people, you know, rightfully so, wanted, wanted you know, to, you know, to... to go to court or want justice or, you know, and I, I, I support the, the victims. I know, yes, people filed charges against him. He never went to jail, but he did lose uh, a lot of money to lawsuits. What does that, I always think about this um, with regard to when, when parents, cause I, I have two little boys and, and so I think about, you know, I'm I'm an alcoholic, so I think about sick shit. But I'm always like, what do you do when someone who you love does something horrendous, right? Like, what are these? I was, I you know, I think about them when there's a school shooting. I think about the mother who, like, her kid does something, and you're like, what? It's just you have shame and 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 a connection to this person. How with your dad? How did people treat you or did they treat you differently? And what, how did you kind of integrate these different emotions? You got, you, we need a whole other podcast for that. <laughs> you, you know, and for the listeners, like I'm, I, I joke today, but I've, I've done enough work to be able to, to play with this in a way. I mean, you can only imagine the severity of this topic. I mean, I was 18 years old. Let me go back a little bit and to touch on that. I left my, my house because of the, sh- the stuff with my father and pornography. It wasn't safe for me. I wound up going to a buddy's house and I was drinking Jack Daniels or Captain and Coke with them. And we're getting all s- 
sloshy and whatnot. And uh, I couldn't stop crying. I was crying and crying and crying. And, and everyone was like, Mikey, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I was sobbing. And the whole story came out. Like I couldn't, I, could, I, I couldn't hold it in. I was holding the story in. My father was a prominent religious figure and he was a substitute teacher in a prominent school and actually my school as a high school. Right. So I've had my father as a teacher before, which is totally gnarly now that I think about it and talk about it. So I go there and tell him the whole story. And, and my buddy, Anthony, his mother's like, you're coming to live with us. So I'm like, oh, sweet. I'm, I'm there's my ticket out. I'm, I'm out. But at the same time, I was moving into a house that was, you know, I was the drug dealer with Oxycontins and I was I was living in with a lot of people uh, and supporting them with, um, you know, substances. And it, it wasn't a good environment, but it was better than my my where I was living. So. When this, I had used Oxycontin for about a year with them. I was a little, old, little past 18 years old, and I, I had met my match. Like I said, I, I, I couldn't. I was 138 pounds. I knew I was going to die. I couldn't eat food. My mom brought me to my pediatrician's office, and you know, she said, "All right, you're going to get some help for this." I was 18. I sat on the this table of my pediatrician, little little kid's doctor with a baby scale next to me. And he looks at me, he checks me out. I was a great guy, Dr. Morin. And he says, you're, you're okay. You're, you're good. You're healthy. You know, you'll be all right. You're ready. You're ready to go. And I was like, ready to go where? And he's like, you're ready to go to detox. And I was like, go to detox. No freaking way. Am I going to detox? Not a chance in hell. And when I say that, it was coming from a place that my ego, I, I couldn't give myself into detox. Now, when I say this, it's not how I think today, but I'm going to tell you how I thought back then. Only losers went to detox. Quitters. Quitters. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, quitters. Yeah. And, and once again, this is not how I think today. I work with you beautiful people in this, in this community and recovery is my thing and supporting you. So I love you. And at the same time, at the point, at that point, I couldn't, I couldn't go to detox. I was like, detox? What are you crazy? I got some methadone on my street on the street. I detoxed myself off of, of 500 milligrams a day, and I've never touched an oxycontin to this day. Thirty days into the detox, my, this stuff came out in my in the paper with my father. The Catholic abuse scandal erupted in Boston. Into so, your detox? Oh, that's in, helpful. Into my detox at my buddy's house. Mm-hmm. I was detoxing. I had a calendar. At, at they the already end. knew, right? You already came they out already with knew. it. They are okay, 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 okay. So I'm getting good. back to your story is, you know, how could, like, here I am, 18 years old. Thank God I graduated high school. Can you imagine going into school no, and your dad's on the paper of being a pedophile? I mean, that is, I'd rather have my dad be the, the biggest bank robber, not a pedophile. Totally. So you can only, once again, coming back to the story may be different, the feelings are the same. The shame I felt Oh my God, the shame I felt. But here's the thing, Ashley. I had to work with that shame. I would, the shame wanted me to not hold my head up high in my town, wanted me to not go into this store, that store. And I would go in anyways, because you know what? It took me a lot of time to realize this, but it wasn't me. But right. That was, was, and that was, that yes. was the kind of thing. Like it's, it, that was, I was exactly what I was thinking. Like, how do you separate, right? I'm talking about the integration of the feelings, but also the separation you had to do that. This isn't your shame. It's not my shame, but that wasn't just a one and one and done. That was, you know, I've been, I've been healing, you know, with therapists and on my journey for years and years and years. And and I had to talk about that story. I had to create some separation between him and me, you know, so, so I wouldn't take on that. Now, as we get into psychedelics and so forth, did I take on energetic imprints 
oh, you bet your ass I did. And I've had to, I've had to use different modalities and medicines like psychedelics to be able to, or I should say they're, they're showing me that. So that's, that's the, that's on a deep level, but yes, I, I had to, you know, create that space and it wasn't me. And 30 days into 30 days into detox, I wanted to crawl out of my skin for anyone who detox on opiates, you know, Mm -hmm. I was out of my mind. And I said, if I can stay sober through this, I can stay sober through anything. So 18 years later, I know I said I've been in recovery for 16. That's because it took me another two to put the other hors d'oeuvres down. But I met my match with Oxycontins and they wiped me off the face of this earth and I haven't touched them in 18 years. And that's kind of how that went. So when you, when that happened and you were, you know, this happened while you're detoxing, how did you, you say like, if I can stay sober through that, I can stay sober through anything. And I've heard people say this about all types of events, losing children, spouses, you know, cancer, whatever it is. Right. And what did you do during that time? What did, what was the thing that saved you during that time? Because that's such a fragile time and what an incident to to happen. So how, especially you know, the teacher thing and all of it, all of it. So how, like, what, what was you, what, what kind of cradled you? Well, I think spirit, I spirit definitely cradled me, whether you call it God or whatever, the divine was definitely with me. Um, The divine was supporting me. I remember having conversations with a couple older, you know, kids that I looked up to that were like, Gavoni, you know, man, you're, you're, you're so much more than this. I, I like, they could see me, you know, like, this isn't you, my, my, my mom, my sister, you know, I, I was not so kind on those things, as you know, they make you agitated. And so I had some people in my corner that really supported me and loved me. But when you said that, what came up arose in my consciousness was the gym. Mm, there you go. So I wound up going to the gym so I could really get some endorphins going and I can, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's a whole other topic that I can speak on um, if you want to go there, but it's really important because so many of us who are unwilling to come to our unwilling to complete the arousal cycle of trauma, jump into things that keep us at the top of that arch for so long, right? Whether we're chasing whatever, you know, use off that endorphins or cortisol or, you know, it gets like a, adrenaline. Oh, like, you know, getting on, like riding dirt bikes or motorcycles or going to the gym or CrossFit until your arms fall off or yep, whatever you're yep. escaping. We, we, right? we, we do this. So I'm and not you're, saying... And- you which when you talk about completing arousal, right? When you talk about that, what does that look like as opposed to the things that you're describing? Uh, to allow your nervous system to complete and allow yourself to feel the 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 downward kind of fall of of what's here without thinking you're gonna die. So like resting in the present moment and hanging out there for a moment and opening up to the sensations in your body and opening up to the committee that's chirping in your ear all day long that you think is you and developing some space between that without trying to run and run and run and run. Mike, when I was frankly until maybe 10 years sober, that was like hearing Japanese to me. Like I didn't know what I heard people say stuff like that, and I, I literally didn't understand the idea that you would 
have a feeling, sit through it and not go do something was not on my plane of consciousness. Oh, like, me, me either, girl. <laughs> I mean, just absolutely. Like if I, if I had a feeling it was like, I, I had literally like move my body or something. Yeah, think, and feel, react. Totally, totally. So I think, you know, one of the things that's important when we talk about this stuff is to describe what that looks like. Because when people are like, oh, sit with your feelings. I'm like, I don't know what you are saying. And and what it would be is, what it would look like would be, I'd be upset. And instead of calling or doing or blah, 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 just literally teaching me to go and sit down in a quiet space and feel the feeling. I honestly didn't know how to do that. Of course. And many people don't because the habitual reaction or the habitual way of going about is to continue moving, continue going, you know, not allowing yourself to settle, not allowing, not even knowing you have a nervous system. I mean, if you, if you want to really get to recovery, let's talk about your, let's talk about your brain and nervous system flat Mm -hmm. out. This is the Mm -hmm. problem, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Per se. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and later on down the line in this story we can get into is what brought me home to myself was everything I've just shared with you. You know, and, and I, you asked me if sexual abuse was, was part of my story with my dad. And I, I said, I don't know, because I, I, I don't. But it, it is part of my story. So everything I share with you and all that trauma and whatever I experienced was like a skip in the tulip pot compared to what I experienced nine years into recovery when I got sick. So I didn't know either. So I hear you. And so many other people don't know how to create presence, awareness, you know, how to let the energy of trauma titrate out of their nervous system don't they also this is a whole other language we can go into and speak about but this is where the healing is yes i agree i agree and 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 i i i want to say something before we get into you know the next piece of this which was that for me i did so much talk therapy i did so much cbt i did i did all the therapies right i did all the therapy the other uh, talk therapies and in this past year or so one of the things that has come become really clear to me is that I it's I now need nervous system therapy. Like the talking is not, I, I've reached the point where the talking has, you know, I've, I've maxed that out. And the nervous system therapy, my nervous system is still stuck in that high gear, is still stuck in that high place. And so now, because I've gone back to therapy, I'm like, why is this not taking? Why is this not? And, and, this past year, 2020, all of this stuff, my nervous system, it's about, it's about, you know, that regulation of my nervous system and really working on that. And that's a, that requires something different than just talking about it. It, 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 for me, it requires something different. And that's been a really interesting journey of different therapies at different times, you know, in your recovery. For sure. And, and what you speak about is important. And, and I know your, your recovery center is all about um, cognitive behavioral therapy, but trauma resides subcortically. It resides, you know, in, in the subcortical parts of the nervous system. And you have to begin to address, process, resolve, and integrate that story in an embodied way. Because why we can't sit still is because Everything we're running from is inside of us. And that's the trauma. That's the dysregulation in the nervous system. That's the dis-ease 
the disease turns to disease eventually. Hypertension, right? Irritable bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, cancer. So many of these fibromyalgia are the in a, the inability for the nervous system to complete and and be restored to equilibrium. So the healing is when you begin to become embodied, right? Is when you become. I'll just share with you. When I first got sober, my my sponsor said, "Hey, you got a problem living in the past or future?" And I said, "Well, how's this fool know what I'm thinking? How does he know?" And he he knew exactly what I was thinking, but not on a trauma level. And I'll take it a step further: is is you can't access the present moment when you're constantly being, when you're constantly, let's just say, in a traumatic response. You follow me? Your 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 nervous system, it's in either fight or flight or maybe shut down mode, right? So that's the depression. That's the anxiety. Then you go to the guy in the white coat who has a bunch of degrees and he says, yeah, you're fucked up. You're bipolar. No, shit happened to you and your nervous system is dysregulated, and you can restore it, and you can regain equilibrium, and you can touch your own wholeness. It's the most difficult journey you'll have to go on because at moments you'll think you're going to die because that's what this fight or flight system is for. It's for, you know, trauma is a result of, of of, of experiencing something that is too much for your nervous system to process. So it's not what happened to you, as Gabo Mate says, it's what happens within you as a result to what happened to you. My sister isn't an addict. My sister, she's a police officer. She has, she has a similar story as us, mine a little different here and there, but she didn't express disease. She didn't, she didn't become addicted. Yep. You can have, I have two younger sisters. You can have, you know, same house, different stories. And and I think, you know, you talked about like, you can feel like you're going to die. Look, I felt like I was going to die during a breakup. I felt like I was going to die when I was detoxing, uh, when I was pregnant, uh, all, all sorts of scenarios. Like that is not, that is not the indicator that something is, that that's going to happen, right? My, my nervous system telling me I'm going to die, not always accurate. In fact, most of the time inaccurate. So learning to override that and say like, and move forward and move forward through fear and pain. And that's kind of why we start, you know, calling this the courage to change because change happens as a result of those moments where you, you can't go on like this. This is no longer working. And usually when that happens, it's like feet to the fire kind of deal. It's no longer working. And, and I get super, I, my work is working with people who are in recovery for 10, 15, 20 years who have been on AA's journey, NA's journey, whatever their path is, that, that's all good. But people who are like, yeah, I still can't access the present moment. I'm suffering anxiety, depression. My past is chasing me. You know, all this different stuff is coming up or, you know, they want to take a more holistic, integrative approach. And it's like, we have to become embodied. We have to, when you just said, we have to override, what overrides that ANS, autonomic nervous system, is consciousness is awareness. Yeah. So from my perspective, the best relapse prevention you could possibly have is your own conscious awareness. But what does that mean? That sounds like I I love it. And I, but like people listening to that, what is that? It sounds like something, you know, the, that they would only understand in Sedona. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. I love that. Um, 
Well, let's just, let's just go back to some wisdom practices, right? Let's go back to some ancient teachings, right? Even with Christ, be still and know that I am God, right? The Buddha, the, the Buddha is the awakened one, the knower, right? So who we think we are is not really who we are. And what I mean by that is, is, you know, Eckhart Tolle talks about this a lot. Presence, consciousness, the observer. So someone that can observe experience, right? So I'm not, I'm not trying to get all woo-woo with you, but this is very important because the road to healing from the root of addiction is directly correlated to accessing your higher levels of consciousness, right? So, right. yeah, so we're, we're moving up into the evolution of, 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 of our, of our nervous systems, right? Of our, of our prefrontal cortex here, of us having more agency over this body, over what comes out of our mouth, over a sensation that comes in that we can say, oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. Besides get hijacked it, excuse me, hijacked by it, and then be off in Never Neverland or having a thought come in and just saying, oh, that's an interesting thought and letting it pass through like a cloud in the blue sky. Well, who's observing that? Who's watching that? So when you have, let's go back to why we use drugs and alcohol is to regulate the nervous system, to find some sort of comfort, whether you want to be up or down or all around or even completely, you know, blocked I want to be out. up and down up at and the same down. time. That, that's it, girl, <laughs> right? right? So we're, we're, the, the, the substance, as Gabor says, always does something, right? Creates that connection, allows us to be speak freely. We can come out of the vault of trauma and, you know, tell people how we feel and we can dance or whatever it does. So when we, when we begin to go on this journey of healing, we actually go, we're actually raising consciousness. We're beginning to let go of these patterns, behaviors, things that no longer serve us. And we're having access to the higher cortical parts of, of our, of our operating system to the point where if you are blessed uh, like me or fortunate enough, then your socks can really get blown off and you can have a whole transcendental experience and mystical experience. And then you come back and say, Oh shit, I- I'm not really who I thought I was. And this is pretty interesting being here in this skin suit. So I know, I know I've gone over a little far for maybe a lot of people, but let's come back to basics and start with a little bit of, of, of awareness practice. Start relating to our experience in a new way so we're no longer attached to the good and grab on to more of that and pleasure seek. And we don't push away so much the of the discomfort and say, oh, I don't want to get rid of that. But we can begin to begin, we can begin to create this, let's just say, practice the the the, the basics of, of sanity, of dealing with what is in a way that leads to more wisdom, more compassion, more healing, versus more of the same repetition compulsion that gets us stuck on the merry-go-round. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. I want to interrupt this episode to have a short little discussion about support groups. And there is no better person to talk to about this than my production coordinator, Ashley Joe Brewer, AJB, if you will. AJB, hi. Hi. Okay, you're a big fan of community. You attend community support group meetings. Give why? Why why should people care? I absolutely love community because it creates a community. And I know that sounds funny, but 
It truly provides a space for anyone and everyone, no matter what they are going through. Just to give you an example, I invited or told a friend about community because she was really struggling with binge eating disorder and had gone to many different groups and felt shunned or not accepted or like it wasn't a place for her. And at community, she found a place because in community meetings, it's we don't care what the substance is or what the struggle is. Everyone is accepted no matter where they are in life, no matter what they are recovering from. And I think that's what's beautiful about community. Oh, I love it. And I, I, yes, I 100% agree with you that the value is that you don't have to know what your problem is, what your struggle is, what you want to give up or not give up, or whether you're abstinent or whether you're stopping one, whatever, whatever it is, you are welcome and you are welcome in this place. And it's a great place to discover the answers to all the questions that you're looking for in a community and have that support. And it's free to anyone. You go to lionrock.life. And there is a tab with community meetings. There are different days, different times, different subjects. There's even a cooking group called Community Table. There are so many different options, something out there for everyone. So I highly recommend, maybe after you listen to this, if you are looking for more community in your life, more friends, more support, please, please go check out community, lionrock.life. Click that community tab. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing you said that's interesting to me, you know, you said, well, I, I'm not who I thought I was and like that you got to figure that out. Well, I had an ex- I, I experienced that figuring out that I, I'm not who I thought I was or who I told myself I wanted to be in my 20s. And it was a very painful experience. And you know, a lot of what a lot of what you're talking about, I think, is is about learning to invite transformative experiences. And I think doing that one step at a time, like over the course of your recovery, part of doing that is learning to show up authentically just every single day, doing something that where you feel authentic, because over time, I think it it brings the ability to have that consciousness. If I had tried to just sit with myself in the beginning, I probably wouldn't have stayed sober. Yes. So everyone's at a different place. Everyone needs, some people may need a little bit of this and some people may not need this, but they need a little bit of that. And, and yes. So I very much agree with you. If you told me to sit, you, you, you did tell me to sit and meditate actually in 12 step. That's the 11 step prayer. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as I understood him. For the first 10 years, nine years of sobriety, I was not sitting in meditation. I was in the gym twice a day. I was running triathlons. I was running from any sensation or feeling that you could possibly, you know, want me to feel. So then there comes the day where you have the potentiality to bloom your lotus when you get that that friction or whatever it is that you need to wake up. So it can be in long-term recovery. If you're in long-term recovery right now, I'll speak your language. If you're miserable and you're still in the same stuff and the patterns and behaviors are still driving your life and you can't have 
you know, you can't open up to intimacy and relationship. And, and this isn't, I'm, I'm not saying negative things. I'm just saying habits that I had, right? I couldn't, I couldn't commit in relationship. Women were scary because I had an alcoholic mother. I was, couldn't stop the running. I was in the gym building up my armor twice in the day. So you couldn't get close to my heart. I was, you know, chasing external things, money and finances and prestige. And then at the end, I had to face myself. So we, we all get what we need to wake up. And unfortunately, it's not, it's not comfortable. Comfort doesn't lead to awaken. That's by Arashanti. Comfort does not lead to awakening. And I'm, I'm concerned with your consciousness as someone who's in recovery. And it could look at, it could start off by being, you know, for example, I, I am a somatic experiencing practitioner, right? I'm, I'm currently going through the training. And when I talk to someone and say, okay, just pause for a moment. They tell me something they went through, experienced, and just take a moment and, and stop and check in with yourself. What do you feel right now? <gasps> my chest is so tight. I feel like there's a, my throat is constricted. I okay, let's, let's be with that for a moment. Right? Then you can guide them to, what, is there a place in your body that feels comfortable? Well, my, my right toe feels good. Beautiful. Let's, let's use that as a counter vortex and let's begin to notice that. And then trauma is all about creating safety or trauma healing is all about creating safety, creating trust, and then beginning to explore what's in the body below the clavicle because the issues are in the tissues and we can begin to hold space for the story. And the story isn't even that important. The activation of trauma that keeps us from living in the present moment, that keeps us from being serene and enjoying this beautiful blue sky, that keeps us on the hamster wheel of the constant chase is living in your tissues. And that's where we have to titrate and move out so you can actually feel comfortable in your own skin and have access to the present moment. Not Absolutely. The- Am I making sense or am I speaking Abs- Oh, absolutely. No, no, you're making total sense. I, 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 you know, the issues are in your tissues is one of my favorite sayings that, you know, I'm a, a big fan of um, the body keeps a score and, and, you know, it, it's not something I believed until I was sober a long time. Honestly, it took me a long, it took me a long time to really understand how that was how that was even possible. And I just, you know, in the beginning, it was really about just saving my ass, like just save, just like get me from, you know, don't die. That was like, those were my goal, life goals, you know, don't die. And, and, and then my life goals got like a little bit better, like, you know, do say, you know, do something, whatever. But it was, you know, I remember talking to my mom about, you know, we were, when I was a teenager, I was like, you're embarrassed of me or blah, blah, blah. And you, you know, I just how I, how I perceived that she perceived me. And, you know, she was saying how she was once with a group of people who were talking about like their kids getting bad grades or their, you know, something to that effect, something of that, you know, they weren't getting into the right school or they won't blah, blah, blah. And and my mom thought to herself, like, that is the least important thing. You know, I, I, I could not care less about that. I want my child to live that those are the stakes. Those are the, those are the goals, the goalposts. And, in the beginning, it's it's don't die. And over time, my experience and kind of what you're talking about is can, that... Ashley, can I interject for a moment? Like, are you yeah, talking about yeah. like impending doom? With my mother? No, no. Like when you said, I'm not trying to die, is that, is that, would you, could you label that as that as impending doom? Uh, could I label that as impending? You know, I want to say yes and no, because I was staying sober and 
I had a sliver of hope that I was going to be able to stay sober and there were people along the way. So it like when you say impending doom, I think to myself, yes, like I had the impending doom was like, I'd never stayed sober that long. I had never, like it could, it could go at any moment, but I had this sliver of hope. So it was like, I kind of had both. I don't know if that makes sense. Of course. Yeah. So your you got your story changed dramatically. You you got sober, but then you you had you got very sick in sobriety, and that was the catalyst to change. Yes, that's right. My <clears throat> my body gave way, as you said. Uh, you read a beautiful book by Bessel van der Kolk. The body keeps the score, and my my um my scorecard had run out, and uh, the the disease had become disease. I bought my first home. At this point, I was like 25. I was, uh, how long? I was about four years sober. And I was renovating the house and had a lot of stress. And eventually I got sick. And I got sick with a lot of diarrhea and blood in my stool. I didn't know what was going on. So I went to the doctors and, you know, they, they did a colonoscopy and I got the diagnosis of universalis ulcerative colitis, which is uh, an autoimmune condition, irritable bowel disease, similar to Crohn's disease. And I left that hospital and I got had a prescription of, of drugs to take and I took them and I got myself into remission, let's just say. Nothing was really ever the same, but I was doing better. And I was dating a woman at this time who lived in California, who I met out in uh, Vegas at a buddy's surprise birthday. And I thought I was going to go move out there and explore this relationship. And lo and behold, it didn't work out. We flew back a bunch of times, saw each other, and it didn't work out. But I had this, I was going to say, wicked. Ur- ur- <laughs> <laughs> I love it, yeah. This wicked, you know, sense of urgency to travel. And I grabbed a backpack and traveled nine countries by myself. So I got a one-way ticket into Mexico, went to Guatemala, Panama, Ecuador, Peru, Colombia, Chile. And Wait, I have to ask, how did that go with the uh, intestinal stuff? So yeah, let me, let me get to that. I, okay. was, I was in Guatemala, three countries in, and I got a parasite. Okay, yeah, I was, I was going to say, that it can't be. Yeah, and that, that didn't go over very well at all. In fact, I was laid up in Guatemala trying to get rid of this parasite, and I was so determined to travel. I was trying to get all the way down to Brazil for Carnival. I had all my tickets mm, bought. You know, I was yeah. I was single at the time. I was oh I, yeah, know, I was get best. it on. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the in the in the little microscopic parasites, you yep. know, with the end of take me. you down. Yeah, it took me down. So I came back to Boston. Terrible symptoms of ulcerative colitis. I fired my old old GI doctor. I hired a new one, and he couldn't, he couldn't really help me to the point where I was healing, but they were prescribing a lot of drugs to me. And I was on one drug. And at the end of taking it for 12 months, it had shut down my liver. They were giving me uh, business cards to surgeons to call surgeons to remove my colon. So I would take the business card every time they gave it to me and I would throw it in my trunk and I would slam the trunk shut. I wouldn't even look at it. And I, I, I like taking out my colon wasn't an option for me. It wasn't. And at that point, the drug I was on, I was really, really sick. I was coming down with multiple chemical sensitivity. So something happened with my liver and the inability to process toxins. So there's more to that in the sense of when I smelt the chemical, 
it would go up the olfactory nerve and the sense of smell is the only one that goes directly to the amygdala. And it's so close to the hippocampus. That's why when we smell things, memories come back like this. And of course, the traumatic memories can, can, you know, can come back to people. So I was hyper aroused to the umpteenth degree. Now picture your worst day with anxiety times 100,000, where my amygdala was stuck on. I was completely in a horrific fight or flight response. And the the doctors didn't know what to do with me. He told me to leave and go see a hepatologist because of my liver. The hepatologist said, Mike, you know, if you don't take care of this, you're probably going to need a liver transplant in about eight years. And I had two organs on the table, colon and liver. And I, I knew it was that time. It was the time to leave Western medicine. So I, le- I left Western medicine and I started uh, to embark on a holistic journey, which leads me to the work I do today with people as taking an integrative holistic approach to their life. And I started changing my diet. I started uh, growing vegetables. I changed my whole backyard into, into gardens. I was growing herbs and all these different foods. And I was going to yoga and I was doing yoga with a bunch of 50 and 60 year old women. And I was just letting all this trauma come out of my body. I knew I was holding it all. The irritable bowel disease and the stress was a result of my nervous system being stuck on and from, from childhood. This was, this was rooted in trauma. I knew it and know it. So I went on this journey to heal and I did some therapies that um, are controversial and I did some therapies that were extremely beneficial. One in particular, which I'm sure you've had no one talk to, not talk to you about on your show, which I will, because it's, um, it's a procedure done that is out there and the FDA still won't do it. Not because it doesn't work, well, because um, there's thousands and thousands of dollars in drugs. Now, I'm not anti-Western medicine or anti-drugs, just for the record, but there's our, our medical system is, is uh, very broken. So I had a dysbiosis in my colon. Now, if you want to get on top... <gasps> did you have a fecal transplant? I did. <gasps> I'm so excited. This is oh awesome. Oh, my God. She knew about a fecal transplant. Oh, hey, you need yeah. to turn my light on. Can I turn my light on? Yeah, now? yeah, yeah. I'm so excited. Ashley, you're the shit if you know about a fecal... Oh, fecal okay, do I know about... I want a fecal transplant, okay? Oh, cool. I want to take a crapsule or whatever it is. They they eat someone else. They talk about... They, they've literally shown... They they took a obese rat and, and put it in a skinny and, and that rat got... Fat. Yeah, it's incredible things with, with um, autism, with all sorts of... Yes, I'm all about it. Tell me about your... Tell me about your poop transplant. Yeah. So it's funny when, when I asked the GI doctor who was a, a world renowned GI doctor, he was working for Brigham and Women's Hospital. I mean, that's, that's one of the top hospitals in the world. I said, what's the prognosis here, doc, with this? Come on, people just cutting out their colons. What's the deal? And he's like, uh, fecal transplant. And I was like, I literally thought they opened you up and put a piece of poop in you and sewed <laughs> you back up. I had no idea. And at that point, I wasn't even interested in learning about that, which today boggles my mind. Like, guys, in re- like, there are so many things we can do to heal. I mean, so many. I'm, I'm like the hub of a wheel that can spit out a bunch of spokes to you. And that's one of my gifts. But I mean, we, we, need, to, we need to work on this on all level because trauma affects the microbiome. Yep. Right. Very when, you're, much when, so. when you're stuck on and sympathetic or shut down, you're 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 spitting off some some heavy duty chemicals in your body that are pro-inflammatory. Yep. 
right? You, and, you, you, and you're more likely to get sick. So you're more likely to take antibiotics. So you're more likely to blah, 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 blah. And all those things. There's a great book called The Good Gut. And, and it talks about a lot of this stuff, but yeah, our, our, and a lot, our immune system is in our gut and also a lot of things that relate to mental health. There's a lot of peer reviewed journals, my friends that talk about mental health as it relates to the gut, you destroy your gut and you can destroy your mental health. And one thing that was very fascinating to me, I went to this dietitian who also has PhD as it relates to mental health. And he, the first question he asked me, I've never been asked, this has never happened. Were you born vaginally? (laughs) No, but I was, but he didn't, that wasn't the question. It was similar. He, the first question he asked me was how many times in your life have you taken antibiotics? And I, I, no one's ever asked me that. I was like, what? I don't know. I'm here for, I'm here for food advice. What are you talking about? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, well, that means it's too many. That means you've had, and, and I seriously could not, I said, there are people out there who know how many times they've taken antibiotics in their life. So yeah, that's, and, and what that does. So anyway, I poop transplant. I want to hear all about it. Oh yeah. I'm just, I'm just getting fired up right now, actually for the show. So this is great. How'd they Um, get, how'd they get the poop in there? Okay. So Real quick, just to, just to piggyback what you said about mental health. How many people have mental health issues who are in recovery? I mean, it goes hand in hand. Uh, every single one. Yeah. So let me let me well, just put that out there. <laughs> once again, when you have trauma and you're dysregulated and you're shooting off a bunch of hormones and cortisol and interleukin six and you're super inflammatory or super inflamed rather. Your brain is going to be affected. Your body's going to be affected. You might have a dysbiosis, which means you have a very high amount of bad bugs and a very low amount of good bugs. So we know today that the bugs are turning on and off inflammation in our bodies. Not only doing that, they're making the neurotransmitters that support your brain health. 90% or whatever the case may be, don't quote me exact, but somewhere super high like that. 90% or or a little less of the serotonin is made in your gut. Come on, we got to start looking at this. The days of going to 12-step meetings and eating Dunkin' Donuts and drinking coffee, we have to think bigger. Do you know Zach? Do you um, know? Zach Bush. Okay, I have like the world's biggest crush on Zach Bush. And if he ever hears this, I will leave my husband and marry him. And I think he's amazing. And I have like like a brain crush. He's just, every time I hear him talk, it's just the best thing I've ever heard. Have you taken his supplement? I've been really curious about that. No, I haven't. I should just to support him. I know. You should. Yeah, yeah. I, sh- I should. Yeah. So, <laughs> so... Back to the poop transplant is I am sick as a dog. I have two organs on the table and these docs looking at me going, we don't know what to do with you. So I leave Western medicine and I hire a functional medicine doc. At this point, I can't even breathe the outside air. Now, when I say I can't breathe the outside air, I'm not lying to you. I, 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 I had to leave my corporate job because of the janitorial closet that was not too far from our office had a bunch of chemicals in it. Everyone's wearing perfumes and deodorants. Now, I have always been able to smell acutely, and this situation only exacerbated that to the point where, let's just say a gift of having a good nose turned into an extreme liability, and now I'm hyper-aroused and my amygdala and brain is on fire from smelling chemicals, okay? So if you have a chemical sensitivity, that's an indication that your immune system is already perked up. Talk to me more about that. You can contact me later. But 
So here I am, don't know what to do. I start researching everything. I hire this functional medicine doc. I fill out this paperwork, you know, lots and lots of paperwork. And she gets back to me and says, oh, yeah, I know what's wrong with you. And I'm like, oh, my God, I was just at Brigham to a women's hospital. And these dudes don't know what's going on. But you do. And you're in um, Idaho, Boise, Idaho. I'm in Boston. Like, let's 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 connect. And sure enough, she helped save my life. And I talk to her to this day. I still work with her here and there. And I told her, I said, I've been researching a lot about fecal microbiota transplant. She did a poop analysis from Genova Labs. I had a dysbiosis in my gut. And I wanted to do a FMT. That's the short abbreviation. So. I didn't know where to get healthy poop. So Yeah, I, that's the other thing. You got to you got to be careful what kind of poop you do. Yes, people, please don't stick someone else's poop yeah. in your butt without mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, so no. yes. So you there's got, a one of, you can you can you can get all their other pathologies. Yes. Absolutely. But there is a beautiful website. I don't know who the uh, originator is of it, but thank you very much. It's a woman. Poopmatch.com? Nope. Thepowerofpoop.com. <laughs> Okay, I was I wasn't I wasn't far off. Yeah, yeah, you're close. And it has tons of data and 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 I was reading testimonials verbatim of people that were on the same medication as me, same effects and suffering and they did a FMT, a fecal microbiota transplant and and they had you know, they were light years ahead of themselves. So I said I'm doing this and I started to follow my intuition, right? And at this point do I get? Do I'm going to get into the the spiritual experience I had first, or keep going on about the FMT? I mean, hit me with all of it. What's what's? Well, here's the other component to healing, and this is why I'm I'm really supportive about the shift in your consciousness. This is what needs to take place, right? Carl Jung says we don't become enlightened by imagining images of light, but by only making the darkness conscious. The things that are driving the subconscious, we have to make conscious so they stop driving our life, including eating terrible food and getting ourselves into situations that isn't supporting our health. So I began to practice meditation because I was I was overstimulated and I began to listen to my body. And I'll, I'll I'll get into the the spiritual experience later on, but I was I was first time I was I was slowing down. I couldn't run. I couldn't jump on my bike. I sold my two thousand dollar carbon fiber road bike to a buddy because I never thought I'd be able to ride it again. So once again, going back from where we were earlier, actually, is when do we begin to slow down and begin to be with things as they are? Well, for me, when your ass and brain is totally on fire and you can't run anymore, that's what it took me. So I'm always intrigued by what it takes for people to actually stop and wake up. And it's a lot. And like you said earlier, having an ego death and losing who you thought you were is extremely painful. This is now we're getting into the work of spiritual transformation, spiritual transformation. But before that, let's talk about poop. So I reach out to a buddy and I say, dude, he's, you know, he's, he's good looking guy, got good skin. He's, he's muscular. He's in shape. I said, bro, I'm struggling. Like he, my buddies knew what I was going through. I go, do you, can you donate your poop to me? Right. That was a pretty, that was a pretty um, vulnerable place to go. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, but if you told me to sit on, you know, sit on your head and spit nickels out of your mouth and you'll be cured, I, I you know, yeah, give me all the totally. nickels you got. So he says, yeah, I'll do that for you. So ready, audience? Yes, this really happened. He would take a fresh, you know, poop in the morning. I would go get it. 
Now, this isn't crazy. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't Uh, crazy. I don't care if it healed you. I'm still going to laugh. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm I'm, I'm with you. You'd go get it in the morning like your day. Okay, wait. How did you get it? What did you do? The crazy thing about him, he was so regular. I asked him. I go, were you vaginally birthed? Yeah. How many times were you on antibiotics? Yeah, did yeah. your mother breastfeed you? Give me the lowdown, bro. Like I get now. Oh, do, yeah. you have, do you have some sort of sexually transmitted disease that you can't pass to me? So going back to my functional medicine doc, for the record, I'm not giving anyone medical advice, but this is you just don't you just don't do a fecal microbiota transplant without doing proper tests. I had his blood work done. His doctor was in on it. His doctor knew what he was doing. He supported it. His doctor knew about FMT. We got his, all his blood work done. I paid $500 at the time to get a, a Genova test and see his microbiome. Now, Ashley, check this out. This is wild, guys. You ready? Your primary care doctor, for the most part, is not going to know this shit. The labs came back for his poop analysis. And my functional medicine doc looked at it and said, hmm, ask your buddy if he has a toothache from the microbiome. Sorry, I'm yelling. From the microbiome. I go, I go hey, bro, you got a toothache? He goes, oh, yeah. I go, dude, my functional medicine doc, pop, you pop positive for this little inflammatory mark because of a tooth. Wow. So talk about like moving from an old paradigm. Your boy, yeah, 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 yeah. Jack Bush would be all over this. Oh, talk about moving sure. from an old paradigm to now my functional medicine doc going, oh, yeah, he's, he's got a toothache. Everything was cool for me to do it. I would go to his house. He was so regular every morning at the same time. I would go there. I would get it. I would drive back. Now, remember, this. at this point, talk about the hero's journey. I couldn't even work. I couldn't even function. I couldn't. I was so sick, and I had two organs on the table. I bring it home, and I make what's called a poop slurry. So you take distilled water. and you, Yeah, you mix, you mix okay. it. Uh-huh. And this is, guys, ready? The Chinese have been doing this since the 4th century, calling it yellow soup. When another dog eats another dog's poop, there's something in that poop that that dog needs. Oh man! Okay, follow, wait, hold are you on. Following me? Hold, oh, I'm, 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 I'm here. I just they called it soup, and then you lost me. I was thinking about soup, and wait, hold back up. Did you drink the like? No, you put... absolutely not. Okay, Come on, I was like, get good, to the, you, no, good no, no, Lord. no, 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 no. <laughs> well, hey, you were the one talking about you wanted to take a poop pill. I, I still to this day never took a poop Crapsle. pill. Crapsule. Yeah, crapsule. <laughs> <laughs> the other the other yeah people who are in on this like you know just checking you know who are behind the scenes and i must be getting a kick out of this podcast who are doing the editing whatever but anyways so you make a slurry with it and then you you and, and like when i said about the chinese this isn't a new therapy you know everyone's like oh my god a fecal micro transplant no 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 we've been doing this for a long 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 long, long time so and I would, so how I took it, made a slurry. I would screen it, right? And yes, I would have gloves. I would have even a face mask on at some point, you know, but it's tested. It's good to go. And then I would put it in an enema bottle. I would put an enema tube to it and I would put it up there and I would give myself an enema. So I'm, I'm inoculating my colon with healthy bacteria, probably trillions of bacteria. And lo and behold, my nervous system, excuse me, my, my, my immune system begin to turn on, right, in a healthy way, and I begin to have solid bowel movements. And you must have had to, so you had to do it, how long did you have to do it? Because they have to colonize, right? So they have to, you have to do it enough that they actually, oh, you, like. You want to know how long I had to hold it for? No, no. 
<laughs> I mean, yes, but no, what, like how many, how, how many days, like how often did you do it before you started to notice results? Like you can't just do one enema and have it be. Yes. And just to back up here, I am so open about this because do you know how many people are suffering from irritable bowel disease? I have clients that have irritable bowel disease that are in recovery that, that haven't linked their biology, excuse me, their biography and their biology of what happened to them. I got one kid right now who's in total remission, right? Off doing a deep work of healing his nervous system. So he's not spewing off all these cytokines, you know, which are causing inflammatory bowel disease. There's a lot of components to this, but people, this is amazing. And I'm an open book. So you want to do it for about the, the, the recommended 10, 10 implants, 10 days in a row. So that was challenging. You know, I had to wake up and do all that and uh, to hold it in a perfect situation overnight. Oh, the, no. It's not like an enema that makes you go. It's it's to the contrary. It's just like it's just in there to the point where it just. Yeah. You, you know, just it just your body absorbs the water. Exactly. Exactly. So this is deep what we're talking about. But all of this is correlated. Now, you might be you know, you could look at another way your body expresses the disease. I mean, asthma, obesity, you know, what's what's underneath it? And, and I'm not here to say, oh, you know, every single person who has an ailment has trauma. We all have trauma in some way. We live in a traumatized society. Right. <laughs> you right. know, COVID is just traumatizing right now. We all have masks over our face. We can't, you know, see each other's facial expressions. We can't. We're social distancing. Wait, we're social primates. We're made for touch. We're made for connection. So healing my irritable bowel disease was a huge, or healing, excuse me, irritable bowel disease was um, a, a, a journey in itself. And you did, to, to, for the record, you, you did heal it. So today I don't have active irritable bowel disease. Do I know when there's some inflammation here and there? Sure. Do I have blood in my stool and diarrhea? No. Am I, do I have you know normal bowel movements? Sure. Is my belly still struggle at times? Do I have to take digestive enzymes, hydrochloric acid? I'm on top of my, uh, my stuff to function optimally with autoimmunity, but no, it does not. But it, I mean, it, like you were at the verge of losing organs. Losing so the colon. I, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, talking about like going from that to where you are is in my book, healing. Yes. So as my mentor taught me, all sickness is homesickness. All healing is self-healing, a journey back home to your true self. This is the same for addiction. If you want to look at addiction as a disease model, which I don't, but sure, if, if you want to, but the dis-ease, all sickness is homesickness, right? Addiction is homesickness. All healing is self-healing, a journey back to our authentic self. So that's just the beginning of coming back home was beginning to slow down, beginning to listen. But what, let me back up, but the transformation that happened and resulted in my nervous system resetting and me seeing with completely different new eyes was with the multiple chemical sensitivity, I couldn't even be in the environment. So the diesel fuels gasoline, all these things were triggering me. So I would find refuge in these like state parks near my home. These, you know, I lived near Cohasset and Hingham at the time, beautiful world's end. I would go there and I would, I would practice meditating and practice walking and being present because what was happening in my psychology or my, my, 
my mind was I was taking the present moment and it was painful to be with all these physiological symptoms and I was projecting it in the, in the future. You know what that equates to? Suffering. So we don't suffer in the present moment. Suffering takes time. So we can be in pain, but suffering and pain are less, you know, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. So I began to notice through stilling my mind, through practicing meditation, that where my mind was going with the physiological symptoms, where it was going and projecting was a terrifying place. Now, true story, my functional medicine doc at the time had a population with multiple chemical sensitivity. I'm not the only one on the planet that has this. And if you have it, I, I, my, I do. Okay. My, I am my compassionate, my compassionate heart, like just rains on you and anyone who has this. I right? can't, Can, it, for me, it's, um, it's, uh, around propylene glycol, um, vegetable glycerin, any kind of, any kind of perfumes, any of that. And I will get a migraine and a bloody nose and can't be around it. So like any kind of vape at all, I completely deteriorate. Did you use the vape? I did briefly, but my, uh, I was around a lot of people who vaped and I was around a lot of vape and cre and cre it, it poisoned me. And so then I developed this chemical sensitivity. All right. So maybe me and you have a talk off the air and we can just, you know, I'm more than help, happy to give you some insight or people to contact where you can begin to address that. Because at the end of my road here with that, I was contemplating um, suicide and I was going to jump off the Tobin Bridge in Boston because um, I was so hyper aroused that I was suffering so dearly. And the beautiful thing about that is if you ever heard the quote, no mud, no lotus, is the suffering, the, the darkness with that taproot of that lotus flower. She taps down in through the water, into the mud, the murky, dark, stinky mud. And then she has this beautiful taproot that comes up and she sits on a lily pad and she opens and blooms. And she's a beautiful, you know, symbolism in the Buddhist tradition and other spiritual traditions. But we need that darkness to awaken consciousness. So everyone who's in recovery has experienced enough suffering to awaken consciousness. And that's where I get really excited about it because this, this is an opportunity or pain as teacher. Illness is opportunity to awaken consciousness. Addiction is teacher. It's, it's an opportunity to shift your consciousness. So here I was in the woods. Now, when I say meditating, I was like, oh, I'm meditating for five minutes. I was suffering so bad. I, I sometimes had to say, Mike, make it to the next stop sign driving my car 10 feet down the road and just be here, just be here, just be here, just be here. So I had to stop this monkey mind that was connected with the, with the smell sensitivity going to my amygdala. Now, your amygdala is your threat-detecting machine. For all you guys out there that have experienced trauma, your amygdala is sensitized. It's, it's a, probably a little bit more active than it should be, especially if you have anxiety and you worry and all that jazz. So nothing's wrong with you. Your, your, your neurobiology needs a little upgrade and tweaking and calming and all that, which is the healing of the nervous system and brain. So let's talk about the real stuff we need to do in recovery. A four-step? Yeah, great. How about let's uh, retrain your nervous system? That's, that's what I'm about. Anyways, so... 
I began to meditate and meditate and meditate, and I had a profound mystical experience. Now, when you say, okay, Mike, tell me about it, it's beyond conceptualization. It's ineffable. It's, 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 it's beyond what the mind can come up with. So the best thing I can share is I, 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 got, a, I got to experience the, the truth. Now, in Buddhism, right, or, or let's just say um, in Christianity, the Christ conscious or Buddha nature or Atman, right, the, these, these places of, of awakening, ascension, right, the chakras and moving up. And, and I had a full-blown moment where I, I, didn't, I didn't exist. There was no me. There was no body. It was pure, blissful consciousness. Now, at this point, this was a, I, I was, I was going through the crucible months, weeks and months. And I was, I was reading books. I had left the, the company. I was seeking, I would show up at drum circles, yoga centers. I didn't know where I was going, but I, I couldn't be at AA meetings with a bunch of people smoking. I left AA. I just, I started a whole different path. And I had this profound awakening experience that shifted my whole perception on reality. So there were many beautiful things that happened during that time. So it's, it's you know, to have the whole totality of things, you have to have both the darkness and the light. And, and I was going through these moments of darkness, and then I would pop out to like touching the present moment with just the stillness of mind. And it was beautiful, right? As, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, the miracle isn't walking on water. The miracle is walking mindfully on the green earth, is to be here. The kingdom of God is in the present moment. But none of us, not none of us, a lot of us don't have the opportunity to touch the present moment because we're all in these trauma responses. We're all stuck in this mind. We can't access the moment. We can't slow down. What, when you work with coaching, you know, when you work with coaching and, and talk with people and, you know, obviously if they're, if they're, you're coaching them, they're self-selecting to you, but how, where do you get people to start who know nothing about this? Like this is their first introduction. You sound like you just, you know, made love to a ghost and come out talking woo woo. Like they, they, like they're just so lost, right? Like you're going to drum yeah. circles. They're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. How, where do you, where do you tell those people to start on this? Like, because it's a, it's a language, like it's a different language that we're using these different words, consciousness. These are different words. They're not accessible to everybody. How do you, how do, how do you show people that bridge to the, this new language? For sure. So let's just say when I meet someone for the first time, establishing a safe connection for them is is top priority. Most people in recovery, you know, we are suspect of you and you and everyone else. What are you up to? Especially if you're from where I'm from, New England. <laughs> so establishing, you know, and also if you're a traumatized victim, you know, you're like a threat detecting machine. Your nervous system is primed for to determine or detect who's friend or foe. But this is below your consciousness. This is something, a pattern you may not even be aware of. Or maybe if you're listening to this for the first time, a light bulb may go on and say, oh, please, I do that all the time. So establishing safety with them, establishing a rapport with them, just listening to them, letting them just, and, 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 and really allowing them to just slow down a bit and just to notice their environment, right? We're all on Zoom now. So let's just take a moment to just feel 
this chair beneath your sit bones for a moment. Let's just take a moment to drop in and look at maybe um, a certain color in your environment or or maybe there's a window in front of you and tell me what you see out the window. I see these trees and they're swaying really beautifully in the blue sky and these clouds. Oh, let's take that in together for a moment. Let's just notice that, right? And then let's just notice how that feels. Oh, when I take it in, I, I feel like we may even see them just take a breath, right? And already in that moment of just orientating to their surrounding, we take 70% of our information in through our eyes. So this is a great sense store to begin to access what's here. When we're stuck in here our whole life, we don't know we have this thing called a body. We don't know actually what's around us most of the time. We're stuck in the story. We're stuck in the proliferation of thinking. So the first step is to establish safety, connection, and let's just let's just let's just drop down a bit. Let's hang out. Let's get real curious about what this is about. And just for to teach to share with you is a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to tell people my story, what I've been through. The story isn't even really that important. It's what's going on in your body. Now you need some context to begin to see the activation of what's here. And what I'm explaining about here is in a specific situation where I'm establishing presence. Now, most of my clients are dysregulated. If you're in recovery and you haven't done your trauma work, you're dysregulated. What do you think the addiction was about once again? The attempt to find that restoration balance and connection within your own body and without and within outside of it. So acclimating to the here and the now is a great first step. And that's kind of where we begin. Do you have like, do you have, you know, books that you are like, this is my go-to, you know, when people are starting out on this new journey, do you have books that, that you highly recommend? Well, yes, yes and no, depending upon where each person is at. Some people come to me and resignate resonate rather with Buddhism in the Buddhist teachings, right? I have another client who's, who's, who's a, a, you know, a a Catholic, which is great. That's his faith. It's his faith and his prayer. Great. I wouldn't recommend a Buddhist book to him, but there's even the point where like the body keeps the score is a little little heavy, you know, for someone. Would I recommend that if I thought they could take it? Sure. Um, So yeah, there are books, but I'm more interested in, in moving beyond the cognition I don't want you cognitively getting involved in this. I want you embodied. I want you I want you embodied. So let's connect with your breath in this moment. Tell me what you notice about your breath. What do you you know, how are your 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 feet right now? Are they on the floor? What's that like to feel rooted and grounded right now? What's it like to notice you have support from the back of your chair and from mother earth under your feet? What do you feel in your body when when we when we bring that sense of awareness and presence together? I'm more interested in this besides any books. Books are great, but once again, healing trauma, you, you, you can't start from the top down. I know your, your people at your office would probably want to crack me in the head. It's a, it's a bottom up. And can you have both? And there's a lot of, you know, there's the jury's out on a lot of it, but I start by exploring what's here. Yeah. I like it. I mean, I think, you know, in, for us, for, or for me, I could speak for myself. And is it I getting like it's all stages? It's all different s- stages. And and I yes. needed I needed the CBT at this stage, and I needed you know like I needed 
to peel the onion and that I wasn't ready to do that deep work in the beginning. So it was just, again, like those goals were, were really, you know, basic and, and moving on. And then it's now it's a much different story, but in the beginning, but you know, what's interesting is it's not any less important or life threatening today as it was in the beginning, right? The, the work that I need to do today is still as important as the work of don't die because for a person like me, if I don't do that work, I do die. That's 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 how that goes for me. So it's the stakes are the same, but the the the, the you know the the chapter is different. Yes. So I I hear you, and and I very much agree with everyone is at a different spot in their process and needs different things. That's why a good practitioner will know what you need in that right. moment. Right. 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 So yes, the other thing is, if you were my client, we'd be getting really curious about that part of you that thinks it's going to die. Yeah. I mean, that part of me, that that's my fear of, that's my healthy fear of my drug addiction and alcoholism, that if I use, I will die. And if I don't, if I do not continue to recover, that I will end up using those things again. Yes. And... That part of you that's holding the fear also is holding the wisdom in the aspect that the old pattern of trying to keep you alive in whatever way worked for you. It might have been using drugs and alcohol, right? Because sometimes that's what they do in the beginning. Or that's in the beginning, yeah. yeah, they keep us yeah. alive. So bringing a deep sense of curiosity to that and really beginning to notice that these parts of us that hold the trauma also hold the wisdom into, once again, making that conscious so we can begin to let go of that forward motion of trying to, I got to do this, I got to do that because I got to stay alive and stay in recovery and I got to keep going my recovery. If I don't do my recovery, I'm going to die. And I'm not saying you're doing that, but hey, there's a lot of people doing that, right? If you go into six meetings in a day, I'm going to tell you there's deeper work to do. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely not what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, yeah. but you're right. You're right. I heard someone say, I can never get enough meetings. I'm like, oh, that is, I absolutely can. So that we is- become dependent or codependent on that. Right. Yeah. So, and yeah. maybe for a time that's, you know, okay. Yes. You know, yeah. Yes. And I, I, I feel like, you know, it comes back to those chapters, but, you know, the work that you're doing is profound and, I love how you you got there and I I love that you didn't it's it's incredible to me that you you were able to hold on to the spiritual wisdom throughout everything that you've been through. I could easily see someone even in their recovery coming through all of this and and with the early religious experiences particularly also the switching, you know, the born again, all of it, you know, coming through and and that religious trauma really being a barrier to some of the spiritual aspects of what you have accomplished and, and, and experienced. And, you know, you've been, you were able, I think the, the ulcerative colitis, right, brought you that new level of spirituality and, and desire to live. And it's just really your, your, your journey is really cool. Like really, I mean, I'm sure there are parts of it. You're like, yeah, that, that wasn't so cool. But the, your journey is just really phenomenal. And, and, and the twists and turns of it are, are really beautiful and how you where mostly because of where it ended up. Right. But it's just, 
it's it's incredible. I'm I'm so amazed and and you healing yourself that way is a testament to who you are as a person, right? Like just that that resilience of like, no, you're not going to tell me that I'm going to lose these or, you know, I'm not just going to go along. Like I'm going to find the answers. Ashley, I, I am, I am a guy, I'm a seeker. Yeah. I always have been. And there's a, there's a big component to that spirituality that, um, that I was freed from when I had, or the, I shouldn't say spirituality, there was a component to the religiosity in the religious trauma that I was free from when I had an experiencing, or excuse me, when I had an experience of the all-knowing, let's say, because once again, there are multiple paths to the truth. These are all paths, right? It's it's like Hinduism doesn't work for everyone. Catholicism or Buddhism or whatever, like these are all, you know, paths to experiencing the truth. And when you experience the truth, right, it's the truth that liberates, not your effort to be free. So, so many of us are trying to be free, but yet we haven't gotten in touch with the part of ourself that, that has the wisdom. The wisdom is what begins to create discernment. With discernment, you're able to navigate in a way that, that through karmic law, that breeds more happiness or suffering. But you have to get your consciousness on board and be, begin to become self-aware, to some degree, so you're not, so you don't keep spinning the webs that get you stuck. So my family in the lineage with my grandmother passing this priest off to my mother, everyone, and if you're listening to this, great, everyone or a lot of people, there's a, there's a tendency to spiritual bypass. And this is heavy in the recovery community as well, right? Everyone, you know, not everyone, once again, but a lot of people in, in the 12 step, right? They throw God around like it's no one's business and oh yeah, I'm spiritual and no, 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 no. Okay, great. I hear you. You know, and what does that really mean? And, you know, how in touch are you with the moment? And how are you behaving? And how are you treating your loved ones? And so we, we, we can't just mere, you know, just give it up to the old G-O-D. We have to embody and live in a way that connects us to the deeper aspect within ourself that is God. God is within, it's without, right? Be still and know that I am God. And that's what that's a moment that I got to experience that shattered that old framework of the dogmatic Christianity like a shattered glass. It shattered the sense of self of this big, you know, muscular guy hiding behind his pain because he was this hurt little boy you know, that didn't get loved in those moments of truth of, is what set me free. So today, you know, through practicing self-awareness and compassion is I can, I can offer that. Am I perfect? Absolutely not. Ask my mother and my, my fiance and my sister. Will tell you. <laughs> uh, you follow me? I, yes, I do. And, and it's, it's, I love it. It's, it's incredible. I could talk to you all day and, you know, about all of this. It's amazing. Where can people contact you if they've heard something that they like and, and they want to reach out? You can contact my website's mikeavoni.com. I have a podcast called the Healing Beyond Recovery Podcast. Maybe we'll get on that and riff together at some point if you want. Yeah. Um, the Healing Beyond Recovery Podcast, that's pretty much on all these platforms. 
Yeah. You're so on Insta- Instagram. Instagram, Mike Gavoni, M-I-K-E-G-O-V-V is in Victor O, N is in Nancy I, Govoni. And then Mike Gavoni on Facebook as well. Awesome. Awesome. I am absolutely going to follow up with you. And I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people listening to this will reach out because you know, the the stuff that you're talking about is so relevant, especially today and getting in touch with ourselves. And I think 2020 made the world pause. I think there's been a lot of, po- you know, a lot of, you know, a world, a, a, a paradigm shift all all over. And, uh, and the stuff you're talking about is a big piece of that. So thank you so much for talking to me and telling me your story and sharing with me about your poop enemas. I (laughs) am so grateful and I loved every second of it. Perfect. Thank you for having me, Ashley. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting's schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.